trying to do today. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 16, and I'm going to go to verse 17, Exodus 16 and 17. When you have it, someone say amen. Amen. Okay. We'll wait on the rest of you to say amen. Exodus 16, verse 17. This is a um, fairly familiar passage. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably come across this in your yearly Bible reading. And I believe there's a lot of uh, truths here, and I believe there's a lot of things in this passage that is striving to teach us as the people of God. And I, I believe the entire Bible is striving to do that. That's why Paul calls it the teacher, the, the tutor, he would call it. And this word walks with us and it guides us every single day. And I believe that Exodus 16, 17 is, even though it is an Old Testament passage, I believe it guides us today. And to kind of set the stage of what we're about to read, I, I really want to highlight this one word for you, grace. I want to highlight that, and now that we've highlighted the word before we read this passage, I, I want to tell you that there's two dimensions of grace. There's one over here. It's the amazing, this, this grace that we cannot fathom. We, we, we can't quite give it. We can only try our best to replicate what we've seen from it, and God was the only one who could truly show us what grace is, and when we see somebody in our midst who is gracious, it's not because they have somehow attained it. They just read the Bible and saw what grace really is, and they're trying to replicate that. But we can never fully replicate grace to its deepest dimension. Only God could do that. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to process grace. But over here is the terrifying reality of grace, that to be given something so amazing that we cannot comprehend and to not receive it is a terrifying thing for us to be exposed to a God who would lay down his life for us and look at that and say, that's not for me. That is a terrifying reality. And we've only heard about the amazing grace. We have not talked enough about the terrifying reality of grace. So with that, I, I want to now that I've set the pattern, now I want to read this passage. And we're going to build off of what I just said about those two dimensions of grace. It says, then the children of Israel did so, and they gathered. This is talking about the manna. Some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning. It bred worms, it stank, and Moses was angry with them. I, I, I'm going to explain a lot of this in, in the coming minutes, but I want to use this title, Monopolizing Manna. This is what we're doing in this end time hours. We're monopolizing on this manna, and you'll understand what all this means as God helps me bring all this together. Now, would you just right now, before I ever preach about this amazing grace, would you, to the best of your ability, would you run after it right now with your hands raised? And if we have a move of God right now, won't even preach. But there is grace that is available to everyone from the 
first-time guests to the third and fourth-time guests to the one who's been in this your entire life raised in this to the person who's been around this for five, ten years. Would you run after that grace? It's available for the seasoned. It's available for the brand-new. I want you to get a brand-new, renewed passion for the grace of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, I am deeply in love with your grace that you gave me even though I did not deserve it. For your word tells me while I was a sinner, you died for me. God, don't ever let me take that for granted and don't ever let me monopolize that. But God, let me give what was freely given to me. I pray that that's what happens in this very service, that as you are having me minister, that I would give what you gave to me, God. Let me share with your people what you have shared with me. Let it transform them as it has transformed and is transforming me. God, I give glory to you. I'm thankful that you've given us access to your word. God, I pray that someone not only see that amazing grace, but God, they grab hold of that grace. They place it within their heart with the help of your spirit today, and it transformed them from the inside out. God, we'll give you glory. We will not take an ounce of that glory, but God, we'll return it unto heaven, for you're the one who gives all that happens today. God, anything of any value that happens in this house, it'll be directly because of you, so we won't take credit. In your precious name we pray. Would you look, give the Lord a hand clap right now? Would you, with your words, would you thank him for that amazing grace? Would you give him praise for what he did for us? Would you, with passion, pull it up from the depths of your soul and thank him for the selfless sacrifice of dying on a cross for us? Praise God. You can be seated. This passage of Scripture in Exodus 16, I admit, is a bit of a conundrum that pokes fun at humanity's ease of forgetting the amazing grace of God. You see, it has only been a mere 31 days since God rescued the Israelites from the oppression, the tyranny of Pharaoh, and the cold reality of the world that they called Egypt, God has graciously, mercifully delivered them from this terrible place that was destroying them, that was beating them, that was harming them. And God's word tells us that he heard the cry of his people. He raised up a deliverer through Moses. And God, partnering with Moses, aids in delivering the people from this harsh Egyptian world. God's gracious ears would hear their cry and not only hear but also respond by saving them from death by blood-stained doorposts and rescuing them with an outstretched hand and delivered them through water. And yet, even with this amazing resume of grace and love, it would only take 31 days for the memory of grace to wear thin in the hearts of the Israelites. It's easy to misunderstand the love of the Father when you're exposed to the abuse of a Pharaoh. We see this misunderstanding when they said in Exodus 16:2, it says that the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, 
when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The amazing grace of God delivers them from tyranny, hardship, harm, all of these things. And it took only 31 days for them to forget the prayers. God, deliver us from this. And God did. He responds to their prayers, delivers them. But it only takes 31 days of empty stomachs for them to say, oh, that we had died by those pots of meat. And yet, an unchanging God would respond to their fallible immaturity in a manner that is only congruent to his very nature. For Exodus 16, 4, he responds to this complaining and says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Moses, whom the Bible labels as the meekest man to ever walk the earth, would be the first recipient in this narrative to receive a revelation of the pure and gracious nature of his God as he would witness firsthand a God who hears complaining and responds with bread. Only a gracious God would do this. And if we never even got a gospel, we would know a morsel of God's nature even in the second book of the Bible that God responds to our complaining even though he's already delivered us once. He doesn't look at us and say, there, we're even. There, I've done for you what I, need to, I needed to do for you. Now it's time for you to do for me. No, God continues to tilt the scales into our favor even though we did not deserve it. They did not deserve bread. Their complaining deserved a reprimand. And yet God responds, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And this meek man gets this revelation. His God, as he would witness firsthand, responds with bread for complaining. Truly, Moses would have a revelation that he is a good, good father who if his child asks for bread, he's not going to give them a stone. He's going to respond with what his nature is. It is grace. You see, God is not gracious. God is holy. Holy, simply in the Hebrew language, means different. It is uncommon. It is unlike anything on this planet He is different, and his grace comes from his holiness. His grace is different than yours. If you are in tune with your own fallible nature, which I hope you are, and I hope that it doesn't veer you into depression, but rather awareness that we are sinful people, and that's not to lead us into into this place of constantly being down. It puts us in a proper place of humility where we're in constant need, and we can only get there if we're in tune with our fallible nature. And if you're truly in tune with your fallible nature, you will realize that your grace is flawed. For you may do for somebody, but it's with the flawed intention of possibly getting something from them in return. We do favors to get favors oftentimes. And yet God hears complaining and rains bread. For if his child asks for bread, he will not return with a stone. The revelation came first to the humble man of God. But as the sun set and darkness would envelop the landscape, there would be a pure 
white substance that would descend noiselessly in the dark blanket of the evening. There was no thunder outside. There was no clattering of noise to show off its arrival. There was no earthquake that would split the ground. There was no whirlwind with devastation in its wake. Because when humble grace rains down, it needs no extravagant announcement. It needs no screaming. There is nothing needed to take place because it arrives when it shows up. Peace comes with it. And this is why I am often burdened by our apostolic churches that we need constant heightened emotions in order to get us to a revelation of something that only shows up noiselessly. We have become inundated with the constant need of push me, push me, push me, push me. When grace just shows up into the room and to those that are aware will go out and see it and look upon the canvas of the landscape and see, I didn't deserve this. And without screaming, without earthquakes, without heightened emotion, it should well up within us and provoke us to a place of when they would peek their head outside their tents and look outside and see all of this pure white substance on the ground. They would look at it, and I believe something should well up in every household that as they look outside the tent door and they see the white substance they didn't deserve, something should come over them to where they hit their knees and they lift their hands and say, God, I cannot believe that we're living for such a gracious one that you would give this in return of my complaining. That this rained down while I was asleep because if I would have done this to Pharaoh, if I would have complained to Pharaoh about the pots of meat, I would have gotten lashes upon my back. And yet you, this gracious God, as I complained, I got manna in return. Do you know what that would do to every household? I will not complain anymore because I was given what I didn't deserve. What I'll do in return now is you're maturing me by your grace. How dare I ever abuse this amazing substance that you gave me in return for complaining. I'm not going to say, okay, complaining gets me grace. God forbid. I want to go on to maturity so that I can continue living in this grace. I'm not going to continue on in sin so that grace would abound. I want this to keep falling and I'm going to fall deeper and more and head over heels in love with you every day because of this amazing grace. There was no noise. There was no shaking of the tent pegs. They just woke up, thought it was a new day, thought it was a different day and just said, we're going to go out as at normal. And when they looked outside, this is what they said in Hebrew, mana, which is the Hebrew word of what is this? That's where the name manna comes from. It's from the Hebrew word of I have not seen anything like this before. What is this substance that was given to me? And the Bible says in Exodus 16, 14, when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness, notice the verbiage. It says that the entire thing that they were frustrated about their wilderness was what their frustration was about. Them living in the middle of nowhere with no sustenance. It says that their wilderness was covered with grace. 
There was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. The following morning, those who complained would behold the revelation that came to Moses as they each walked outside their tents and witnessed a rain from heaven that came in response to their frustration. This gracious gift from heaven was so amazing that the people looked at it and said, what is this? I've never seen anything like it. I not. What is this amazing gift that I did not deserve? I didn't hear it coming. My tent wasn't right. Rattling. Moses wasn't preaching. I just walked out and saw something I was not worthy of. And here's what I do. I don't need Moses to preach me into this. I can see it out in front of me that the grace of God just covered my wilderness completely. I can't even see the wilderness I was complaining about because God put something out there on it that would provide for me. This is what the man of God would say. To this man of God who first received the revelation of the Father's goodness, he says this to the people, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. The true shepherd of God, Moses, who has a revelation of the Father's heart and nature, tells the people, hey, there's grace in abundance. Go and get some of it. Get out of your tents. Go and get it. I can't give it to you. God has not commissioned me to give it, for I didn't rain it down. This was given by God. But what I am commanded to do as the good shepherd of this flock is I am to tell you that he gave it to you by his grace. Go and get you some of it. But don't just get you some. Get some for each person in your house. Go and get some of that manna for your kids. Go and get some of that manna for your spouse. Go and get some for your family and let them know when that father comes through and he's carrying a big old omer of grace let each child every son and daughter and wife know that this father is representing the father who gave it husbands when you go home be patient with your families be loving towards your wives be patient with your kids i know that frustration hits us all and work is hard but when you come home and you show that grace what you're doing is you're bringing home an omer of what was given to you while you were at work and when you had an attitude god was forgiving you and when you go home and you show that same example to your family they're seeing in you the father that was shown to you Exodus 16, 17, then the children of Israel did so. They hearkened to the man of God and they gathered some more, some less. This is what burdens me is hungry people ran out of their tents, some grabbing it by armful, while others, I'm sure, looked at it and wondered to themselves, I'm not worthy. I was the very one complaining I was the provoker of the conversation of anger amongst all of my peers. I was the one who said we should have died in Egypt by pots of meat. So they took less. And yet a miracle takes place. It says in verse 18, so when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. 
Every man had gathered according to each one's need. In exact proportion to his grace, the equality of God would be revealed to each of them as some came with arms full while others came with fists full. And miraculously, when they put it on the scales, it weighed the same. The ones who grabbed the armful and said, I got a monopoly on grace. I need it more than anybody. And since I need it more than anybody, I'm favored above everybody else. And as they put the grace on the scales, what they would look at is when the person came beside them with a fistful, the person with armful would say, I've got more grace than you got. I'm more special than you are. And when they put it on the scales, it miraculously both weighed the same. And the person with abundant grace and the person who seemed like had little grace, they would stand back and the person with little grace would get something far greater. God is equal. He doesn't give more to the preacher than he does to the drug addict. He doesn't give more to the pastor's kid than he does to the one in the broken home. He doesn't give more to this person who's a Bible quizzer than to the person who's never picked up a Bible. We all get the same portions. Exodus 16, 19, though. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, though, they did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and steak. And Moses was angry with them. Unfortunately, within the context of peace-filled grace, there will always be an immature, fallible group of people that will try to monopolize the manna. You must understand that every good thing that ever comes into our midst always has the potential of becoming a distorted thing, for we live in a distorted world. This is the reality of, of we, we thought that we had an amazing breakthrough with nuclear energy. We thought that this was going to be the pathway to having clean energy. It doesn't burn any carbon. And we thought, this is it. This is the ticket to sustaining life here in our world. And then Chernobyl happens. And we have this terrifying reality that comes along with this amazing reality. They're always walking side by side. And in this context of the Bible, we have this amazing grace that comes to people who don't deserve it. And distorted people think, okay, since we've been given amazing grace, let's store it up. This is what an immature, fallible group will do. They will always try to monopolize the manna. No doubt the motives varied for each person, though. One possibly thought, you know what, I'll stash some back and I'll sell it to someone who needs it later. I can make a living off of selling manna. And we've got ministers all across the globe on YouTube and television that are doing this very thing. I can store up all the grace and I can make a living off of it by selling it to people and I can have a bunch of little drones by selling this amazing grace. While another may have thought there may not be enough of it tomorrow, so I need to hoard it up just in case God don't rain it the next day. And yet another may have thought to themselves, if I show God that I'm somehow a hard worker and I'm responsible with my portion, maybe he'll give me some extra grace tomorrow. Maybe I'll get more than an omer. If I show God that I am such, I'm so tight-laced and I'm so responsible, I can store up all this grace, God will favor me over the next person. And when I weigh mine on the scales, it'll weigh more than an omer. And everybody will think I'm special. We have these people in every church, and I've talked to all of them, and I've been 
one of these three at least once in my life. But at daybreak, the gracious God of equality would reveal that he holds himself the monopoly on the manna. Not a human, not Moses, not the preacher, not the priests, none of the people who built the tabernacle. Nobody gets the manna or a monopoly on the manna. Not a false religious entity that will try to make a buck off of it. Not the anxious who thinks it might run out. Not even the one who works harder than everybody else to earn it. Every morning there was new manna and the ones who tried to monopolize it, they walked in, opened up the pot and they saw it was rotting because you can't live off of yesterday's. He said tomorrow there's going to be a new portion and approximately 1500 years later in a dark hour, grace fell from heaven yet again. There was no extravagance. There was no whirlwind. There was no shaking of the world. There was none of that. He came as a simple baby. No extravagant announcement is necessary because he is the prince of peace. When grace shows up in our midst, it always comes with peace attached to it. And in John 6, 32, it says, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He gave of himself to the harlots. He gave of himself to the priests. He gave of himself to the teachers. He gave of himself to the lepers. He gave of himself to the blind. He gave himself to other ethnicities. He gave himself to other religions. He gave of himself to centurions. Every Everyone got an equal portion of Jesus. Every single person that was in his midst, he said, everybody gets a piece of the bread, but nobody gets to store me up and hoard me. In fact, he would look at Peter, and Peter, when he would get the revelation, I'm going to die for mankind. Peter tried to hoard him up and say, no, far be it from you. You don't need to go die. We want to just keep you to ourselves. We want you to stay within the church of 12. And God Almighty looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. It's only Satan that tries to monopolize the manna. It's only the intentions of a devil that would try to hoard me up. You cannot keep me within a little container. I I am not that small. I am going to give myself for every single person. And here, this is going to be offensive to you, Peter. I am going to lay down my life even for the Pharisees who are going to hang me from the cross. There were some who tried to monopolize grace when they tried to take up stones and kill an adulterous woman. Jesus looked at her accusers and let them know that he held the monopoly on the manna. He said, ye without sin cast the first stone. You don't get to decide if she gets grace or not. I'm the one who makes that decision. Don't hoard it up for yourself and think that you're not going to give her any of the bread. You tried to weigh it out with your pompous prayers and your long tassels and you think that because you have all of that that somehow I'm going to favor you over this woman? No. 
you get the same grace as her, she gets the same as you. There was a centurion who had a sick servant, and he quickly told Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should even come into my house. And Jesus gave him a portion of manna. He said, no, you're not worthy, but I am, and I'm going to give you equal portion that I gave the adulterous woman. Peter tried to monopolize the manna when he said he was going to go die, and Jesus looks at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was trying to hoard him up and keep him in the church. Simon the sorcerer tried to purchase the manna with his works and said, maybe I can buy this and maybe if I work hard enough, I can purchase grace. And he would quickly be told that that was satanic as well. We cannot, will not, and we can't ever hold the monopoly on the grace of God. It is freely given to everybody, freely given, so we have to freely give it. We need to show it to our spouses. We need to show it to our children. We need to show it to our bosses. We need to show it to people at Walmart. Walmart. We need to show it to people at Target. When we're driving down the road and someone cuts us off, we need to say, you get an equal portion. You get an equal portion. You get an equal portion because I was given this and I'm a complainer. What was given to me, I want to freely give to others. And when the presence of God comes into a room, it comes with equal portion for the preacher as it does for the porn addict. The same is available to the saint as it is for the sinner. You can't earn it. You can't can't sell it. You can't hoard it up for a rainy day and you're not too bad for it. But here's the thing Paul said, since this grace was given, should I go on sinning so that more of it will come to me? No, God forbid. When I looked out and saw my wilderness covered with grace, it matured me instantly and I fell to my knees and I said, God, I didn't deserve what you gave to me. So that's enough to keep me straight right there. I don't want to abuse how great that grace is. And I am afraid that as we get older in our walks with God, we are beyond 31 days and we feel like because of our tenure, we're deserving of his grace. This is why our praise and our passion diminishes. Our passion is not supposed to diminish when it comes to worship and our adoration of God. All we need to do is just take a journey back. Every single day that we can, we need to remind ourselves, this is what I was when you found me. This is what I look like. This is the complainer that I was. And you came noiselessly into my midst, and I walked out and saw something that was given to me. The amazing grace of God is so beautiful. It's far better to receive his love. And when we receive that love and we say, God, you loved me so much that you would die for me. And that should move us. But I'm afraid that's become old news. The gospel is losing its flair because it's old news. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Jesus died. What else you got? It's the foolishness of preaching that God has to use. And this is, what I, this is why I believe preaching is foolish sometimes. I believe there's value to it because how can you be saved without a preacher, the Bible tells us. But it is foolish in the sense that everyone has a Bible because of the printing press. And it doesn't take long for you to read a gospel to realize, I didn't deserve this. And that was the best sermon ever told. What more do we need than other than to read what he graciously did for us? It should straighten us up. It should mature us. But if it doesn't do that, if we refuse to be compassionate about the amazing grace, we have no other option but to stand over here and be exposed to the terrifying grace of God. It has been said that if you want to torment your enemies, shower them with kindness. And this is what terrifies me. Last night I was driving and the thought hit me. 
Brother, Brother Williams, and as I was driving, I was thinking of Judas. Three years with that bread. Three years hearing him teach, watching him heal, hearing him say, go and sin no more. But don't ever forget that I saved you. Three years watching him go lay hands on lepers, which according to the law was something you didn't do, but grace does it. Three years watching this amazing God exhaust himself as his compassion toils all the night to pray with people. And he's so weary from compassion, they have to carry him and put him in a boat and he falls asleep in the stern. And then he watches that amazing grace rise up and save them from a storm. Totally exposed to grace for three years. And at a last supper, there he is in an upper room. And notice, this is we need a little help with the culture to understand the weight and the brevity that's taking place in that upper room. Jesus has Judas sitting at his right hand. That's the seat of honor. And not only that, but he tells John, he says, the one that I dip the sop and hand the bread to, that's the one who will betray me. This was not code. This was not him saying, hey, this is going to be the sign that there's a betrayer at the table. That was a cultural thing. When you dip the sop and you hand the first bite to this one sitting in the seat of honor, you're showing them the highest honors. Nobody would have ever expected Judas because he looked like the favorite sitting at the table. And I believe that this was God's final act of grace. He's got to see how great I am. He's got to receive this. This is my last opportunity to reach him as Satan is trying to sift him as wheat. He's already tried with Peter and he's tried with the other disciples, no doubt. But this one he's trying hard with. This is my last ditch effort to show him how gracious I am. I'm going to put him at the seat of honor and I'm going to give him the first bite of bread and not only that I'm going to hand feed it to him and I'm going to go a step further I'm going to wash his feet and when Judas sat exposed to that amazing grace and still had it made up in his mind I don't want this I don't want this I'd rather sell the manna I'd rather sell him than receive him. That was when Satan entered in. Do you understand that the Bible says it was better, it would be far better for him than if he had never been born? Now, here's the terrifying grace for us. You and I stand in an amazing position of new covenant relationship, but we also stand in the most terrifying position of anybody ever in the Bible. It was said of Judas, it'd be better if he was never born. And that's with him betraying a bread giver. Do you understand that Judas betrayed one who washed feet? He betrayed someone who gave the seat of honor. He betrayed someone who dipped the sop and gave him the first bite. For you and I, though, we betray a crucified Savior. Judas hadn't even seen Jesus die for him yet. 
His betrayal is not as extreme as ours. For if we betray Jesus, we're not just betraying a foot washer. We're not just betraying the one who gives us the seat of honor. We're not just betraying just the life of Jesus. We're also turning our back on the death of Jesus. And he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the one who died for us while we were yet sinners. When we say and we go on sinning, we say to him, I love your grace. I just don't think it's for me. We put to open shame, according to Hebrews 6, 6, the crucified Savior. We look at him and we say, you know what? I'm better than Judas because I at least attend church. But Judas betrayed a bread giver. You and I betray a crucified Savior. And this is why Hebrews terrifies me when we read about in Hebrews when it tells us this. It says that we are compassed by so great a cloud of witnesses. And I my whole life have preached this until I read it in the Greek and saw the sentence structure of it all. I look at that passage and I said, we've got a whole group of people that's cheering us on and they're telling us you can do it, you can make it. That's not what's taking place in the text. It's a whole group of people who died under the old covenant and still lived for God in faith. They look at us and they actually testify against us. When we get to heaven, we say, I just couldn't do it, God. I just couldn't, I couldn't live for you. Or God, I just, the world was so hard. Or God, you were too hard. You were too mean. Those people will come forth and say, how then did we do it without a crucified Savior? How did we live then by faith and we didn't have an Emmanuel, God with us? How is it that we didn't even, these are everybody in the hall of faith, mind you, is Genesis beside the prophets. Everybody in the hall of faith in Hebrews, it says of them that these were people in Genesis. They didn't even have the law yet. They didn't even have a Bible. They didn't have any of that. They didn't have a tabernacle. They didn't have any of those things. And yet they said, at the voice of God, I'm going to obey his bidding. And they died in the faith, having not seen those things. Some, he said, time time is beyond me to even talk about the prophets, those sawn in two, whom the world was not worthy. And I've wondered, what does it look like to be amongst the group of people who Hebrews said the world was not worthy to contain them. And God keeps bringing me back to this. He says, those who receive my grace and they walk in my grace and thank me for my grace. When you get to that place, you don't have to try to be humble. Humility comes walking with you. Humility seeks you out. When we finally realize I'm not worthy of this grace, I can't store it up, I can't sell it, I can't hoard it. I can't, I can't keep it contained in a little pot. I can't, okay, when I'm really bad, if I pray a lot today, then when I'm bad tomorrow, the prayers of yesterday will keep me tomorrow. No, day after day, new mercies I see is what the Bible tells me. Every single day, I'm in need of another dose of it. And when I see that amazing grace, no preacher on this planet has to tell me to fall in love with him. There is nobody, there's no conference that I need to visit. I don't need to 
to go get a shot in the hip to keep living for him. I don't have to go from conference to conference to conference to live for God. I don't have to go to camp meeting. I go to those things to be amongst the body of Christ and to hear what God's directing the church to do in this end time hour. I'm not going to get a shot in the hip. Grace gave me the shot in the hip. When I realize his great and amazing grace, I am terrified of abusing it. And I say, God, I don't want to sit in the place of the scoffers where I sell you. I am terrified at his grace. I am terrified. I don't know about you, but I am terrified to stand at that judgment seat and him look at me and him say, I don't see much of myself in you. I am terrified to stand before him because I'm going to be weighed against his holiness. And the only chance that I stand is the fact that I received his grace. I walked in his grace and I read his word and came into transformation to look like him. And when he looks at me, my prayer is, I hope you see the spirit because there's nothing good in me. I hope that you see that spirit that was gracious given to me and I pray that that's what you judge me by is how much of the spirit was in me. That's the only chance that any of us are going to stand. But here is something and I'm coming to a close that truly gets me. Exodus 16 21 it says so they gathered it every morning every man according to his need and when the sun became hot it melted. They quickly realized that they needed to get it while it was available. Because if not, then it would simply fade away with the heat of this world. I believe in my personal study and conviction that Peter had this passage in Exodus 16, 21 in mind when he was speaking to the Gentiles in his letter, when he said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. This is when they came to him and they said, Peter, you've been preaching about the return of the Lord for years and we haven't seen it. You've been preaching this since my daddy died and none of it's happened yet. And this is his response to them. He says, God is not slow concerning his promise as some count slowness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But he turns the dime and he preaches, he preaches the amazing grace of God. He is long suffering. He's given us an opportunity. But verse 10, he shows the terrifying grace of God. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what you and I are doing right now. We are going out and we're saying, God, all the grace you gave me on that cross, I receive it and I'm going to walk in it and I'm not going to use it as an excuse to continue sinning, but I'm going to allow that grace to mature me. I want to walk with you in faithfulness. I don't want to do anything to put you to open shame. This is the reality is God will go to that cross for you every time you make a mistake, but why do I keep making him do what he should have only had to do once? I don't want to put him to open shame every single day. I want it to keep me straight. I don't want to be motivated 
motivated by the fear of losing him. I want to be motivated by the, by the, the holiness and the, the product of having him daily. This is what should drive us. It's far better to stand between the grace of God and the terrifying grace of God and lean towards, I want the loving grace of God. I don't want to abuse him by leaning over here like Judas did into the terrifying grace of God. But both are motivators. It doesn't make this bad, and I'm not motivated to live for God out of fear. I'm motivated of fear by losing him. I don't want to be a Judas. I don't want to abuse that grace. So it should something should come over every saint of God when we're in the church service together. We should just willingly, without the music even having to play, lift up our hands and say, God, I was not worthy of this great grace. That baptism that was allowed to me, I didn't deserve it. And yet when you put me under that water and they called on your name, it's as if you yourself came down when you heard that name and you baptized me. I'm not worthy that you would even put me under that grave, let alone pull me out of it. And yet you did. You pulled me out of that grave. And I'm not worthy that you would pull me out of the grave, but you did something even more extravagant. You filled me with your Holy Spirit. And I'm not worthy of that either. So God, here I am as a vessel. I'm going to offer myself a living sacrifice for this is my reasonable worship. Service in that context means worship. This is my worship, God. It's reasonable. What you did for me wasn't. So God, least I can do is be passionate about you. The least I can do is live for you. I wonder if somebody right now, I feel a holy unction to respond to the amazing grace of God. Don't lean over and grab the terrifying side. Would you lean and say, God, I'm so thankful for that amazing grace you gave me. I'm so thankful for that manna you rained down on me, even though I didn't deserve it. If you're a guest right now, would you come to these altars? If you are a seasoned saint, would you run to the altars? And would you thrust those hands passionately into the air? And would you thank him for that amazing grace? And not just thank him, would you begin the process of transformation right here and say, God, I am going to be passionate about you. I'm going to live for you. I'm not worthy that you would do a single thing for me, let alone die for me. So God, here's my reasonable worship. I'm going to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to be passionate about you. I want that amazing grace. I want to walk in it. I want to relish in it. I want every morsel of bread that you have available to me. Come on, that's it. That pleases God. When we respond to that grace that was given to us, grace is not a charismatic message. Grace is not a weak message. The most profound thing that was ever given to us was the grace of a God willing to die for humans. And when we get that revelation that we weren't worthy of it and we receive that amazing grace that was given to us, the grace of God comes and the grace of God will keep us. The grace of God will sustain us. The grace of God will begin the process of transforming us into the likeness of his son. It changes us. Come on, would you be like sons and daughters who runs to the father right now and says, God, I'm not worthy of it. And yet you gave it. 
Let there be a renewed passion that comes all over you. If you've been in this a long time and you feel like your passion's waned a little bit, would you meditate on the grace of God? Would you let it burrow its way down deep into your soul? If you are a guest and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not worthy, I'm not this, I'm not good enough, I've been raised in this, would you lift up your hands because you get an equal portion as the person who's been in church their whole lives. Everybody gets the same measurement of grace today. Not one person getting more than the other. We all get an equal portion of Jesus. To the Bible scholar, to the person who doesn't know how to read, they all get grace. If you're going to lean, lead towards the amazing side. The terrifying grace is always there, but lean towards the loving side. Grab hold of the amazing grace of God. I don't want Moses. I don't want Rebecca. I don't want Abraham to testify against me and say, how could I do this? And I didn't even have a savior the way you did. Come on, church, we stand in the most terrifying position we could ever stand in because of a crucified Savior. We've been given more than anybody in the Bible ever got. We've been given so much because we have seen the grace of God. We are increased with knowledge. We know more about him than we've ever known because there's been more biblical teaching than there's ever gone forth in the history of the church. There's more revelation than we've ever had of his amazing grace. Let us not squander it, save it up, or sell it. Let us take it and bring it home with us. Let's bring it into our houses. Let's give it to our spouse. Let's give it to our kids. Let's give it to our workers. Well, if you've been beating yourself up, go and get some of that grace. If you feel like you've made way too many mistakes, you just keep falling over and over and over to the same thing, go and get some of that grace. If you feel like you haven't walked in the call that God has on your life, and he keeps reminding you of it and you keep ignoring it. Go and get some grace. I can't give it to you. All I can do today is tell you that it's out there and it's covering the wilderness. That's all I can do.
Come on, I feel peace coming into the room. When grace falls, peace always comes with it. Come on, that's, that's what God wants. He wants you to walk in peace today. For every decision that's made comes from the place of peace in the kingdom. There's one more thing that was done with the manna. It tells us in Exodus 16, verse 33, Moses looks at Aaron and he says, I want you to take a pot and I want you to put an omer of manna in it. And I want you to lay it up before the Lord. And the next word he says just doesn't, I'm imagining, doesn't quite compute to Aaron because Aaron has seen the manna laying out on the wilderness floor and when the sun came up, it melted away. But Moses looks at him and he says, put that manna in a pot and set it before the Lord and it will be kept for generations. And you can imagine the bewilderment of Aaron looking at Moses and thinking to himself, how can it be kept for generations when out there it's, it's melting away in an afternoon? Nevertheless, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. There's something about when the manna is put into a vessel. And you see, the people did this. They put it in vessels, but they put it in their houses. But when the manna is in a vessel that is near the mercy seat, it is preserved. And that manna that would wither away in the living room is sustained in the presence. There is an intense need in the apostolic church for every vessel to be filled up with the bread of God, the grace of God, and every vessel not just be kept in our own watchful eyes, but to take this vessel and to put it right near that mercy seat. What it will do is it will be kept in you. But what's happening is I'm seeing that mercy is put into the vessel on a Sunday, but it doesn't stay before the presence on Monday, and it withers away. The same manna in a vessel, in a living room, it bred worms and stank. But you take that same vessel and you put it before the presence and it's sustained for 40 years. Until they came, verse 35 says, to the inhabited land. The whole point of this is to fill up the vessel with grace. 
put the vessel in the presence of God on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Go back and show people I'm a product of grace. And I'm being sustained by grace in the presence of God. It's what's keeping me. And it will keep you. We have made our gospel so weak that we don't even think it can keep us. We're stressed when people get the Holy Ghost because we think they're going to backslide. I don't believe in backsliding. When you have been filled with grace and you've been put before the presence of God, I believe that this salvation is so strong that it will keep you. It's our proximity that's the problem. That if I can get filled with grace, be kept in the presence of God, it'll carry me through this wilderness into a promised land. And when I get there, I can pour out to him what he filled me up and kept me with. And that's what heaven will be. I'm going to return to him and say, God, I was sustained. This is why Jesus looked at them and he said, I have bread that you know not of. I'm not being sustained by the things you're being sustained by. I'm being sustained by what's been put in me. For I am grace incarnate and I stay in the presence of the Father. And that's what is keeping me. And that's what will rapture me. That's what will take me to a promised land. This is why I walk in peace every single day because of the grace of God. This is what keeps me attuned to my disciplines that God has called me and my convictions because I don't want to put him to open shame. This is what matures me. It's the grace of God. God, you gave me what I didn't deserve. I don't want to abuse it. I want to walk in that grace. I want to keep that grace. And when you stay in the presence of God, it keeps you lowly. It keeps you near to him. It keeps you aware of how great he is. And I don't need the terrifying side. Although it is real, I stand in a dangerous place because I have a crucified Savior. But I also have a, an amazing crucified Savior who died for me. I'm going to receive all of that grace. And I want to sit at the mercy seat every single day and say, God, thank you for granting me access. I can approach the throne of grace with boldness because of your spirit, because you intercede for me. Would you walk in that? Not just today. Would you fill the vessel with the grace of God? And tonight, would you be in the presence of God? Tomorrow, will you be in the presence of God? Will you bring that grace with you to church this evening? evening and would you come into this place with passion in fact I want to challenge every one of you tonight before a musician ever plays before a singer ever lets out a note would you walk through this room with hands raised and would you just thank him for being filled to overflowing with what you didn't deserve and would you make a plan in your life that says God this is how I'm going to live for you and to return payment back to you God not that you need to be paid but I've been I'm in great debt to you and God so what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer myself to you. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to live crucified with you because of your amazing grace. So right now, would you lift up those hands before we leave here? And would you set your mind on heaven? And would you say, God, this salvation that you gave me is not a weak salvation. That baptism was not weak, for it was a powerful demonstration of re resurrection from my dead self. God, your spirit that you filled me with is not a weak 
spirit. For God, it is a powerful spirit. For that same spirit that was in Christ dwells in me, and it resurrected you, it'll resurrect me. So God, this strong salvation, I'm going to put my faith in it. And God, I believe that this salvation will sustain me. I believe that this salvation will keep me until the day of the rapture. I believe that this bread will feed me until the return. God, I believe that this bread will keep me in your presence because it was so graciously given to me. Now, would you offer up praise to him? Would you lift up your voice? Would you let yourself begin to have a revelation that heaven is coming to those that have been preserved by this amazing grace.